This is a shock podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Jonathan. Hi, everyone. This is Jed. And welcome to episode four of From Grit to Great podcast. Woohoo! Episode four. Ooh, yes, episode <laughs> four. It's been like um, how many episodes have we done? So this is the fourth, obviously. But I've, I've I felt like we have been doing this for a very very long time now. I think what you were asking, Jed, is how many episodes have we done so far since season one? So this yes, is yes, fourteen because we've done ten. Oh, but- there you go. Ten to. Yes, that's right. I've, this is fourteen. I, I, I also think you're saying that because a lot of our listeners don't know that we have recorded a few episodes that we thought were good, but when we listened to it again, it was like, mm, I don't think we want to publish this. <laughs> so that's also part of the game because we want to bring the best to our listeners yeah. in this case. And also, this is a perfect time as well to really also look back to all our past episodes in our podcast on season one. We caught up with several issues there as well during the pandemic. We were talking about mostly about the pandemic on our season one. And it's good to bring that nostalgia, so to speak, back again um, and check back where we are now, now that we what are was, out of, this, of the pandemic. What's your favorite episode in season one? I love the episode with Nicole. That was a beautiful episode about politics at work and whether you could, you should be bringing up your politics, your own beliefs with friends and relatives and in your business as well. I really love that episode. What about you? What's your favorite episode? My favorite episode, I think, was about the journey from shifting from being a corporate guy to being an entrepreneur. That's a good one. I love that episode because I think when we were talking to each other, Jed, I think we realized things for the first time while we were saying it in that podcast. <laughs> yeah. So like the, the idea of feeling that you are superior to employees just because you think you're earning more or because you have bigger ambitions, quote unquote, those things were very important realizations because I think everyone needs each other equally. The one thing that I wanted to add, which is going be our topic now, and I can't remember which episode we were supposed to do this, is the art of negotiation. I am reserving for this episode because I think it's very important that when you need to get what you want in life, and these days, the economy is opening up, we're finally getting to see each other Mm face-to-face, your ability to negotiate with people and convince them to buy the product that you're selling or convince them to do an act or a simple ask. If you're a parent, how do you convince your kids to water your plants or wash the dishes? Negotiation is in every aspect of life. That's true. I mean, negotiation doesn't just work with sales, with pitching to your investors. Negotiation is in everyday things that we do. So I'm excited about this episode. So I'm going to hit the bat already. Tip number one, and we're going to be using what literature tells us about negotiation. When you ask the person, the third party, when you ask for information, don't ask an open-ended question. Likely mm. they will not they will not give it to you or it will take longer time for them to give it to you. Instead, if you want to extract that information from them, give them options that they can affirm or they can negate. So I'll give an example. If you happen to be uh, someone who's working in the research department and you are surveying respondents, you're asking them a sensitive question like, Mr. Jonathan, what's your salary level? A better way to negotiate and get the answer from them is to give them options. Mr. Jonathan, may I ask, is your salary level above or below 10,000 USD? Mm -hmm. So when when there are buttons to push, 
people likely are going to push what's in front of them. The it key, makes sense. The key to negotiation is to make things as fast as you can in a snap of a finger. This is the same thing, for example, if you're a real estate agent and you are asking a question to the client. Let's say you're showing them the property and you want to find out if they like the property or what do they like about the property. So for example, you want to probe, I showed Jonathan the balcony. I want to know if he likes the balcony or if he likes the kitchen. An average sales agent would ask the question, so Jonathan, what do you like about this property? Can you tell me? Asking them an open-ended question is going to burden them to think. If you'd like them to know what they think about the kitchen, say it immediately and give them options. Say something like, so Mr. Jonathan, I just showed you the kitchen. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do you think of it? And that option allows them to be triggered to say, is it 1? Is it 5? Is it 10? And the best thing about this you get to understand how intense are their feelings about mm-hmm. it. So when they say something like, ah, uh, it's a it's a five for me, you can even ask a follow-up question and say, ah, I see. Well, five doesn't seem to be high, Mr. Jonathan. Could you let me know what exactly didn't you like about it? That's when you can follow up with an open-ended question. When you're given a set of options, you guys are on the same page of what exactly are you trying to arrive. Here's one caveat, however. When you give people options, when you try to extract information for them, please don't give them too many options. You have to filter and you have to curate the options for them. Because it is bad if you're giving them a 100 options. If you're giving them 20 or 30 options, it will come to a point where the options become so overwhelming that they start thinking that if I make the wrong decision with all of these options, I will regret it. So what happens? People hesitate making a decision. Have you been in that position, Jed, where you've been faced with so many options, you froze and you went into analysis paralysis? Well, it's an everyday circumstance when I am faced with a huge menu offerings from a restaurant. It's very amazing to see all these food offerings in one huge collection of menu, but then it becomes a very hard to choose of which I really want to get at the end of the day. So I appreciate menus that are very small and are very short. So it makes me more clear in terms of the, you know, the decision that I'm making. What about you? The social scientist Barry Schwartz has a term for this. And he calls this as the paradox of choice Mm -hmm. in which it is delicious to face a lot of options at the start. But once you start ruminating about those options, it makes you anxious to the point that you end up delaying the decision. For some people, they don't end up making any decision at all. So for example, you go to a grocery store and you see that, oh my gosh, there are 12 or sorry, there are two aisles, two gondolas of cereal brands. There are about 50 brands of cereals. It makes you feel like you are in a fantasy capitalist world where everything is at your fingertips. And then when you start looking at the boxes, different flavors, different nutritional values, you start thinking, geez, am I making the right decision here? What if there was a cheaper option? What if I missed out this information? You feel so anxious about it. It even lowers your happiness that it defeats the purpose of getting thrilled that you have too many options. So if you are a sales agent, let's say, for example, we do a lot of workshops for insurance agents. We often tell our insurance folks, when you present the insurance policy options to your clients, please don't serve them 20 options. First and foremost, a lot of people are not financially literate as you are. You are already complicating things for them. So it will be better instead to tell them, hey, I've pre-selected five options that suit your lifestyle. Let me know which one suits you. Option A is X. 
Option B is Z. Option C is etc. The more you curate it for them, the more that they also feel that there was a personal touch involved because you were thoughtful about it. So when you negotiate, offer options. And then you serve a recommendation. So that's also very important. And I'm going to go back. In the last episode, we talked about Microsoft folks because we love Microsoft folks, by the way. So I want to give a case study. Jed, do you remember when you are trying to update your software, you always get this prompt that says, would you like to update the software now or would you like to update the software later? I always put it on later mode. Or whatever it is. But the point is, it's a psychological trick to make you feel like you have an option, but the only option is to download it. It's more of a warning for urgency, I would feel. Or it's more of like making you feel like you were given the liberty and you're not being imposed to do it. But technically, Mm -hmm. you are. In negotiations, people lower their guards when they're given an option rather than when something is imposed to them or when you burden them to think about it. Because let's face it, guys, a lot of people are lazy. A lot of people are not as smart as you are. But if you spoon feed them to the the options, they're likely going to say yes. So here's a quick tip. If you happen to be a parent and you're asking your children to wash the dishes, don't tell them, hey, can you wash the dishes later? Or hey, do you want to wash the dishes? I get the point. It's a it's a yes or no. So it's an optional thing, but that won't work. What you need to say instead is, hey, John, would you like to water? Would you like to wash the dishes this afternoon? Or do you want to do it tonight instead? If you're a salesperson and you're inviting a client to watch your webinar, don't tell them, Mr. Cruz, Mr. Lee, are you available to watch our webinar? Don't give them an open-ended question because you're giving them a chance to say no. Instead, say something like, Mr. Lee, we have a webinar on Monday or we also have another one on Wednesday. Which would you like to attend? So the optional question assumes that he has to attend, but it gives him an illusion that he's given an option. And likely, in a lot of anecdotes and scientific studies, there's a higher propensity for people to choose one of them. When I'm following up a client or a very VIP person, I tell them, hey, can I follow you up on WhatsApp or should I contact your secretary? So you see what's happening there? At the end of the day, I'm still asking the person to be followed up, but the illusion of making them feel that there was an option to choose from makes their guards lower. Have you done the same thing, Jed, to your clients? I mean, you're a businessman. You sell furniture to your clients. Can you give me examples that you were able to apply this in the past? No, I was just about to add as well, you know, when they ask, oh, I want to see your catalog, you know, but the catalog sometimes can be very confusing. Um, We have got so many furniture pieces and I ask them immediately, what kind of piece are you looking at? Are you looking for chairs? Are you looking for tables? So I try to trim it down to down to the options, at least two or three different chairs I'm going to push and sell to the person so that they won't get so confused with so many options in there. And also the options are very, very clear. That's why it matters to know and profile your customers before even jumping to any conclusions. Yes, yes. Okay, tip number two. When negotiating, reciprocation matters. Negotiation is more effective when reciprocation happens between the two parties. Chad, I'm sure you've seen this in many Hollywood films or Netflix TV series. Do you notice that every time a crime investigator is interviewing a criminal or let's say a parent is asking a favor from their kids, the person of interest says something back and they ask for something in return. They'll say something like, John, can you tell me if you were at this day and time when the crime happened? And the criminal will say, 
yeah, I will tell to you, but I need you to do this for me first, right? So there's always like, you scratch my back and I scratch yours. And this is one of the most important aspects of negotiation. For you to win the side of the other party, you have to show to them that you're willing to cooperate and that you're on their side. Do you agree with this? I think this is one of the most important aspects of negotiation because Negotiation, it's all about thinking what the other person really, really wants. You have to explore and probe into the things that they demand and want. And then that's what you offer in return so that you'll get what you really want at the end of the day. You know, case in point, you know, hostage dramas all over the world. When the governments or the police or the security would negotiate with those hostage takers, What do they always ask them and what what would they always offer to them is something that it's more beneficial to the other person. I'm going to, I'm going to call this out because you might say, but Sean, what if I don't have the money to give to this person? What if I cannot give what they want? I am not asking you to give something that's tangible. In fact, Mm -hmm. at the initial part of the negotiation, when I say reciprocation, it can mean showing some vulnerability, such as, for example, because you haven't yet met the needs of the person, you will share a vulnerable story in your past life that will make the other party feel, ah, he's opening up because he's on my side. So if you notice, there is such a thing as when I was young, I also did X, Y, and Z. So, So some people do that. And this is why negotiation is always best done with food. Negotiation is always best done when, I'll give you a tip, many salespeople that I know, when they try to sell a product, they bring their children with them. This has something to do with your reciprocation. Because when you, when, you, when you bring your children, you're trying to show a vulnerable side of who you are. And that is, hi, here's my child. And this is the reason why I am working. You're implying to the other person that if you buy this product, that benefit is going to be part of this person's, of my kid's life. So there's that vulnerability part. You're, you're opening up to the other person and you're telling them that this is how I need this sale right now. This is how I'm laying the cards on the table because I'm being honest with you. These, yes. are my mo- these are my motivations why I'm selling. Another tactic would be, you know how some of the negotiators, when they would say, you know, I'm selling this to you at the lowest price. In fact, I am not making any profit anymore. I just want to sell it to you because I just want to dispose it already. Yep. That is a form of reciprocation. You're not technically giving something tangible to the person, but you're letting the other person know, I've already given you an important piece of information. I am at the losing end because you have an advantage now over me because you know something about me. Now it's your turn. How are you going to move? Either you will buy the product or you will make an offer, right? Jed, do you have other examples of reciprocation? I think I've already shared this in the previous podcast as well. Reciprocation in terms of adding something of an extra service to them if they wish to, like, for example, if they want to get discounts and I would say, Maybe I would just give you free delivery, something like mm. that. So it's mm. it, that, that that part of ne- the negotiation becomes um, a win-win situation for both of us because I'm not losing money of the free deliveries because I could just deliver the same piece along the way leading into another client's delivery location. So mm. it's a win-win situation. And I think that's a good negotiating point for me in my um, business as well. All right, last tip. Tip number three, and I think this is something that all of us can relate to, the best type of negotiation where you can extract a yes or any response from the client is to keep it time-bound. The number one effective stressor, from my point of view, is time. There is nothing as stressful as knowing that there is a deadline to it, that if you're not going to say yes or no, 
you might just lose the opportunity. Scarcity is one of the most important resources that a negotiator can make use of. An example of that is a three-day sale. This sale is only happening on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday if you lose it. So you might as well just come over on a Friday or on a Saturday, check it out. And if you want it, then end up buying it instead. In Japan, where I lived before, limited time offer is a huge thing in sales, in department stores, in retail, in restaurants, in cafes. And during the seasons as well, they would do limited time offer of a Sakura cherry blossom drink from Starbucks, limited time offer of Godiva chocolate, limited time offer here, limited time offer there. If you are somebody who's very impulsive, you will get into that groove of just literally buying it at that yeah, point. Because you because know that you'll never, you'll ne- it's not an issue of the price. It's the issue of the availability of the product yes, itself. And, and that is a good negotiating thing that all these companies are actually doing. They're, you know, you're given a choice, but no choice really, because it's now or never. And what happens in Japan is that for all these shops, people are queuing up from days to end. It's such an amazing phenomenon in Japan. And it's all over the country. No matter what seasons it is, there will always be something on a limited time offer. The clothing company Supreme is so good at this. I mean, no offense to Supreme guys, but I don't think there is substantially significant difference with the quality quality of their clothing versus what other athletic or streetwear brands that are available today. The only reason why I think they're doing way better is because they offer their quantities in very limited supply. Plus, they also what they call as the drop. So like they're going to drop the specific hoodie for only three hours or five hours or for a certain day. And in just a matter of a few minutes, it's all gone. So scarcity was artificially created to increase the value of a product, thereby favoring the person who just limited the amount of time it takes for you to capture it. So this is the reason why I'm not into that hype. This is just me. So please forgive me if I sound snobbish, but there's a part of me that judges people who are into the hype of buying things just because they were offered in scarce quantity. Because when you look at it, if I place that shirt in another city or country who has no idea of that brand, it's just any other clothing. Mm. The only thing that makes it different is the environment that surrounds it. It's an illusion that you put into yourselves. The only person who's fooling yourself is you. Again, it's an amazing proof that time is an effective way to make people say yes or no. This is the reason why when you look at negotiations, like your classical criminal and investigator situation, the investigator is always going to say, all right, I'm going to give you a bargain here. I'm going to let go of your number of years of potential imprisonment from 10 years to seven years, if you let me know who you think is the person behind this in the next two hours. So the two hours is so limited, you have to contemplate who did it. And sometimes it even forces you to not properly think about the consequences because you're after the prize of shortening your imprisonment years. I want to add this as well. This is practice worldwide in a lot of industries. When you look at invoices, when you try to ask for a quote for a product, there will always be a line that says, This coat is only available until Friday, 5 o'clock p.m., implying that if you didn't take the offer, the price can change in another time, making you feel that I have to act on it now and I have to share this with my boss so we can decide on it. So time time is so precious and time is an effective stressor for many people. Okay, Jed. So we've talked about three things about 
the art of negotiation. I hope you were able to learn something because I learned a lot from this discussion as well. And I hope our listeners will be able to apply our points for negotiation. Yeah, I'm, I'm indeed, you know, fascinated with how we can be good negotiators with all these little tidbits of advice from you, John. And I hope that some of our viewers could take away something from this discussion of ours. Remember that negotiation is not about psychological manipulation. Mm -hmm. Negotiation is about understanding what you want and finding a match or finding a way to come in between with what the other party wants. Happy negotiating, happy selling, and happy convincing wherever or whichever position you have in this world. I really love how you made this so happy and and so joyful at the end of the episode because negotiation sometimes has got that really bad stigma. But yeah, I guess, you know, we should all just be hopeful and that things are coming out right for both parties, whatever negotiating table we are at. Yeah, because it's it's not just an art. It's also a science. There have been proven ways of predicting the patterns of how people think. And that's what the art of negotiation and the study of it tries to imply. All right, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Bye, guys. Bye. 